A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us yet. Today, we discuss a new planetary body, and Cross gets angry on Phobos' behalf because she is a small one. Um, I guess I should tell you about what we're actually reading, though. It's chapters 35 through 42 of Morningstar, the third installment of the Red Rising series by Pierce Brown. Um, if you don't know what that is, you've got a long way to read because this is the third book, as I just said. So uh, catch up. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. I wish I was drunk at this point because Crossland keeps singing this ridiculous song about the sun and how uninhabitable it is for us human mortal people. Apparently it's from (laughs) They Might Be Giants, which is a great band, but uh, dude, you are not them. They are better at singing than you are. That's just a fact, but like, I can't, I can't stop. You're just taking too long writing your filler today. All right. So today is our sixth episode. You've been been singing all day. The whole (laughs) time, every time you kept (laughs) the whole recording, we just started Uh, every time you would like pause for too long while we were going through notes, I would just start singing it. You're right. This is my fault. Yeah. Today is our sixth episode covering Morningstar by Pierce Brown, and we're here to discuss the first half of part three, Glory, covering chapters 35 through 42. But first, let's talk about what we're drinking. What yes. are you having today? Um, so I picked up some goodies from the from the liquor store as far as like small bottles of like extra mix-in liquors and ingredients. So I made a Benedictine sour. Benedictine is kind of a spiced honey liqueur, really, really flavorful, sweet. So it is two ounces of bourbon, one ounce of lemon juice. And then instead of the ounce of simple syrup or the half ounce of simple syrup, it's actually three quarters of an ounce of Benedictine and a quarter ounce of simple syrup. So that sort of takes its place a little bit. Shake it, pour it over ice, and then I garnished it with a lemon twist and a maraschino cherry. Pretty solid. I think I would have gone a little bit heavier on the Benedictine. It's uh, it's a little bit lost with the with the lemon, but overall happy with it. To follow that up, I have the last crawler that I've got from Lupulin from that last time I visited. This is Visual Hardness, which is a sweet stout with coffee and vanilla. So excited to give that a shot. I haven't had it before, so this will you'll potentially get my raw reaction on on air hmm. nice yeah what have you got it sounds really tasty i am having a pretty like easy quick standard um because it's running a little bit behind going into this today so i'm having a grapefruit old-fashioned so basically just your standard old-fashioned with bourbon simple syrup grapefruit bitters and using a grapefruit rind to infuse it with that Mm-hmm. you know bitter aroma it's uh it's great nice it's just 
a little different, little twist, you know. And then I'm following that up with the Voodoo Ranger that we talked about last week that I like could not remember the name of. It's called Higher Plane because I'm still going through that, of course. So, <laughs> yeah, Higher Plane, very good, very good. Just, just gonna be pleased. Nice. Yeah, good, good standard drinker, good form. Good All right, you. so we have a lot to cover today. There's oh, a God. lot of ground we, in this section. So I feel we're gonna like try we to jink, do... jinx ourselves talking about like. <laughs> Oh, this is the longest episode we've had. All right. Here comes the bomb of a next week's episode. Yeah. You chose all like the, we... like you choose where we read to. So I don't know why you're complaining about it. Well, I feel like this was the best hang. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe, maybe I could have done it on the chapter before, but I really liked this, you know, this, this point right here. So I feel like it leaves hanging good speculation. It up, hanging it up right before the final chapter of this would have been good if it wasn't super easy to see like exactly where it was going. Yeah. If the, yeah. if the title of the next chapter wasn't so bold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So we, we've got a lot to cover. We're going to do our best to give it the usual words and whiskey treatment. The good news is, is that this is filled with a lot of plot character discussion and other things like that. There really isn't any any sort of weird tangents to dive, dive into outside of my obsession with Phobos and meteors. So here we are. Now we're here. Let's talk about last week's predictions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a... Did any of them come true? No, you're drinking for all of them. There's no Deadpool. Okay, we're good. So there. Noah died. Uh, so we don't have to talk about or worry about that. So the first question we asked is, do they all make it out of Tino slash away from the pole? You said. Well, I mean, yes, with the obsidians, but some died on the way out. And I don't think anyone died, did they? No one died on the way out. But like Ragnar's dead, <laughs> which you said, do they? I, I asked him, do they all make it out? And I kind of assumed originally with the question that it was character driven. And you're like, yeah, they're all going to make it out. That is what it was. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you 50% credit on this one. I'll take a look. I already already took it. I'm taking, I'm taking a sippy poo. All right. (laughs) What's to be done with arrowed Cassius? Arrowed. I love that. Uh, I wanted, I guessed and so, so badly wanted them to literally feed Cassius alive to the howlers in the most brutal fucking way possible. But, uh, apparently they gave him a private room in the infirmatory. Yes. He didn't get a private room. No, it wasn't. Bed. It wasn't. <laughs> he got a bed. Does a, does a private bed count? Like if you're not sharing the bed? I mean, in this space, probably. <laughs> probably. It's probably something. Yeah. But yeah, no, he didn't get eaten by his fellow classmates. Yeah, definitely. So, with that, you drink. Yep. Still didn't learn whether or not Darrow has gold or red spermies. Still don't know about Ephraim. Yep. Lots of lots of questions <laughs> still floating out there. So those are the important ones. Those are the only important ones. Let's be real. So with that, let's get into the chapters. Let's dig fast through this because we have dig. so much to go through. <laughs> oh we're going to stall, I'm sure. <laughs> Looking at the document, I'm like, huh. So our average show is like, three pages and right now we're at 11 are we seriously yeah holy fuck crossland <laughs> well i okay actually <laughs> let me let me clarify let me clarify our average show is 
nine pages because there's the glossary on the back end of characters and terms. So like the last two shows have oh. been nine pages. This one is 11 though. And that's last way less impressive, but it's still, well, the extra two pages, is significant. They're, they're dense. <laughs> yeah. All right. So with that chapter 35 of the light, we get the title of the book here right off the bat. Darrow referred to as the morning star, the star by which everyone flies by night, everyone being the obsidian Valkyries and kind of the guide to them and i really like the imagery that's painted here right off the bat you know the the whole freeing of the obsidians and then you know kind of equating him to this celestial body feels very archaic old kind of like the obsidians would do yeah yeah it does i think this makes sense totally as far as like being the name of the chapter but i was really hoping name of the book rather I was really hoping it'd be something to do with Cassius and the morning night. And may, like maybe it's still open for sort of a double interpretation, but I was wrong on that. I was really, I was really thinking, I put a lot into guessing that it was Cassius or the morning night in general. That what was that the morning star, the title was. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely fair. And I think that Cassius to some degree is once again a character that is within our grasp and we're able to talk to as opposed to a, a terrifying figurehead in the yeah. distance, you know? So it's it's interesting that we get kind of re-submerged in his perspective here. I mean, Cassius has already proven himself to be really, really important to the story, though. In the, mm-hmm. in the little bit of time that we've had interacting with him, he's given information that has at best secured a huge force for Darrow. And if not that, he it, at the very least... He has denied that same force for the sovereign. So you think there's something to be said about basically your conclusion here is that you're saying that there's something to be said about Cassius potentially being a morning star as well. Uh, or being being in an, a pivotal instrument to the Sons of Ares and important enough mm-hmm. to have credits within the title. That's fair. Even if it's shared credits. Yeah. Yeah. At the very least, you know, being the, the metaphor and where that's going. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So they settle on moving all of the obsidians into Tinos out of sight after rallying them all together, including, you know, shaming some of the leaders, some of the leaders killing themselves when they hear the news has spread. There's kind of a large gathering force of these obsidians and they move them all to Tinos out of sight for the most part. I mean, agree. I, I'd really like to know what the what the percentage is, because it's tens of thousands of of obsidians, right? Yeah. And that's going to how many people live in Tinos in as crowded of a city as it is? I don't think it's more than 100,000. I feel like it was 400,000. I feel like it's talked about later in the book. Okay, it might it might have been mentioned, but by that, I mean later in this section. But yeah, it's still that's still so much crowding. But they do mention that a lot of people take positions on the ships in Darrow's fleet. So I'd be curious to see what percentage of what percentage of obsidians actually end up in in uh, Tinos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the at the end of the section here that we've read or not even the end in the middle of the section here that we read, we do get confirmation that they all kind of leave Tinos for the most part, or that a lot of them leave Tinos and leave it empty. Not everyone, of course, but the the majority of Darrow's fleet. Um, but we can chat about that more when we get there, for sure. Okay. So we get to Tinos after, you know, a half day of flying underground through caves and tunnels and whatnot. Do you trust Dancer regarding Cassius's safety and his restraints? Like, do you have trust I mean, for how he's being taken care of? Obviously, hindsight and everything, it, it makes this question a little bit silly to ask. But 
or to answer rather. But I, I did. I did trust that he'd be at least kept safe or safe-ish alive. I didn't think he'd get a private room, but I was kind of surprised by how exposed he was in the infirmary. Mm-hmm. I thought it'd be something in between there. Maybe maybe a room with a few a few more important people. Yeah, and I think there's definitely something to be said when we get into the next chapter and kind of talk, or two chapters from now, and we kind of talk with him about a lot of these different things and decisions. I, I guess the reason that I wanted to pose the question is ultimately regarding Dancer's views on golds now that he's actually working directly with golds we get a lot of moments of outbursts and things like that even throughout the section and we know that cassius is safe in the immediate moment but i guess do you have any larger questions about where dancer stands on things Mm, yes yes and no i'm interested in seeing where he actually stands on things but at the same time i know how loyal he has been as far as his track record goes it doesn't seem that his opinions on things really make a a huge impact on his decision making like yes there are certain decisions that he makes based on his own judgments and and opinions and things but for the most part he seems very loyal and very uh willing to do whatever aries or darrow says it's interesting i agree with you i think that dancer has a tough time because he has a strict set of moral values that he keeps in his head But as we've seen throughout these sections and otherwise, he doesn't exactly he doesn't want to execute them with force, right? Like he doesn't actually want to outright hurt anyone, if that makes sense. Like jeopardize jeopardize the missions. I think that'd be the more important one. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's a that's a more accurate kind of insider read. But I, I still don't think that he would choose he doesn't choose violence unless it's necessary. You know, I, there's somewhere in here where he mentions that he's like a good socialist or whatever. <laughs> or the old socialist. Yeah, I think Darrow calls him that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's definitely true. I think he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, of course, being a, the son of Aries and whatnot and being who he is, being a red. Um, yeah, I guess it's just interesting to see. He's he's a lot more complex than he appears. For sure. So we move on to the conversation around Ragnar being a somber reflection between friends between Severo and whatnot and man i i just get i get stuck on this like i said last week the death of ragnar is a big deal it's a big moment in this book in my mind which is filled with big moments up until this point the liberation death of trig etc i i love kind of the the ability of pierce here to take this slow moment and go to this conversation between the two saying, you know, I think he'd always thought himself a blade before he met us. We let him be what he wanted to be a protector. Um, yeah. Yeah. This whole sort of reflection on Ragnar between the two of them was, I mean, it was touching. It was sentimental. And I I think it was as sentimental for the readers as it was for the characters. I liked the story that Severo told as a means of introducing the, uh, the skulls that they had already sort of alluded to in, in, in the text, just the different mental weight of actions versus coin in the eyes of different people. I mean, this, this is Severo sharing his virtual reality goggles with, with Ragnar. And he, he said it's something along the lines of like four and credits. So it's, it's probably pretty similar to the Oculus quest that I have hanging on my wall, right above my monitor right now. Like, yes, cool toy. Yes, not like a super cheap thing, but also not 
prohibitively expensive and fairly easy to come by if you're looking for it. But the gesture of Severo giving it to Ragnar was enough to be worth like a spiritual brotherhood immortalized by a tattoo. It seems really cool. It seems really, really interesting to think of it that way. Severo's relationship, you, you mentioned this and alluded to it last episode or two episodes ago, but Severo's relationship with Ragnar grew off screen off screen exponentially, right? It was a it was a huge deal what kind of happened between the two of them mm. while Darrow was gone. They were really kind of in charge of both the Howlers and the Sons of Ares at large that they knew of. Of course, right. without Quicksilver's arm of the Sons of Ares. And so it's it's great to kind of get this additional backstory you know and like the reason that it matters so much between the two of them i just like i miss i miss ragnar i wish i would have gotten to see more of those moments you know we get it in the candy bar moment that you talked about last week that you love so much yeah exactly the 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 friendliness between the two but yeah you're right It, it was it was the simple acts of kindness that meant the most to ragnar and that's why i think he you know obviously loved being called the shield of tinos like that's why that was a huge deal to him is you know he was able to shift his reputation as this terrifying beast in the arena and on the battlefield and everywhere else playing with darrow's nieces and nephews like yeah he was yeah he was truly a friendly giant even when he could also i don't know probably kill several people with one hand in a matter Mm -hmm. of a couple seconds if he really wanted to yeah he's a he's a great character you know what i don't think we ever really talked about this and i think maybe it's I mean, it's kind of late to do it here, but I think that it's worth mentioning if you had to put someone in Ragnar's shoes as a cast casting idea, um, who would you kind of throw out there? If anyone, Ooh. you know, like I, I think that where a lot of people lean is like immediately they're like, oh, well, the mountain from Game of no, Thrones. He's, like, no, that's he's, not right. No, yeah. he's like they're they're thinner than that, aren't they? <laughs> the obsidians. Yeah. Like they're not necessarily Icelandic beefcakey dudes like they they're big but they didn't they don't strike me as as stocky as the mountain is no i mean there's something to be said for the sheer size of you know the obsidian so they're significantly larger of course on top of that they're i i think i think beefy or beef cakey or short you know i don't know that is the right way of describing what they're not like they're definitely not thin and lithe and muscular like the golds are they're definitely beefier than the golds but they're not stocky insane yeah right they're broad-shouldered yeah but they're not stocky yeah um honestly i could see like uh it being a breakout role of a former nfl player or something who had an early retirement like just hmm. some super athletic dude who is big enough to actually play <laughs> professional football or something like that yeah that's i think that's a great point i i feel like like dave batista is pretty close yeah like he's 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 pretty fairly close if he were taller like much taller but at the same time fucking movie magic yeah right right. i don't think you're they could totally i don't think we're going to find anybody that could actually fill the role no they're gonna have to stand on apple boxes in order to be the right size (laughs) I, i i think most of these characters, if translated to a screen, will be CGI'd to be taller in some way. Yeah, or filmed around. I mean, that would be the other part of it, right? Like, you could shoot in different ways. Yes, but there there has to be a combination of that. Think of The Lord of the Rings and all the hobbits. Like, there, there were certainly uh, filming tricks, but in the end, it was still VFX. 
Oh that yeah, yeah. There, there, there are definitely definitely certain portions and parts that'll be that way. Right. Yeah. I, just like extending people's legs is difficult to do. You know, like if you think about Josh Brolin, the reason that Thanos works so well is because he's literally just green dot, completely artificial. So, and they have like a little flag above his head that was hanging off the back, mm-hmm. um, like a poster. Yeah, that's. That's how they managed to film that. I could imagine something similar for, you know, a handful of important obsidians, especially Ragnar. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, even Batista, though, might be too, too stocky for what I'm thinking. Yeah, it should be mentioned. I'm kind of thinking someone like Batista. I feel like Batista is maybe the closest that we can get to someone who, like you said, is an ex-athlete, like an ex-NFL player, something like that. We just need to find kind of the right one to fill the role. But yeah, I would, I would agree. His lines are simple enough where, you know, this sounds demeaning to the character to some degree, but like it's, it's simple. You could coach someone to do this pretty cleanly. I feel like, and you need, you need somebody that could still make it emotional, do really great action choreographs or choreography. Yeah. It's ultimately going to be the most important thing. So it's going to, it's going to have to be somebody athletic and you're right. His, his lines are relatively simple. They'll need to have a booming deep voice and i mean i can't think of that many like mainstream actors right now that check all of those boxes that are no like, are also like ron perlman in his prime god you know? that'd like, be fucking awesome right yeah that's that's like that's dream casting but he has to be like 20 years younger yeah but. i could see it what about someone like jason momoa yeah jason jason momoa would definitely work he could um, do it or the rock but that might be weird because of like all the other roles that he's been in and the fact that he has some inherent charisma that Ragnar probably doesn't actually have. Yeah, I wouldn't probably put the rock in, but I could see Momoa doing it within reason. You know, ultimately, it's it's not the same. It, it doesn't line up perfectly, of course, with some of the nature. And we definitely don't want to typecast Jason Momoa right. as a consistent guy. But I think but, but he great plays it well. like him in C. Yeah. <laughs> But like him and him and C, I've only watched the pilot so far, but oh God, great, so great good. There. I, I really yeah. do like that show. So anyway, I, I just wanted to pick your brain since we hadn't talked about that at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's I hadn't I hadn't thought about it. I wish you would have told me you were going to ask me that so I could be more prepared. But I literally just thought about it right now. So that's why we talked about it. That's just an extra little note here. A, now, a little words and whiskey nugget for you. A little extra little bit that wasn't in the, the <laughs> script quote. Nothing's really in the script. They're just prompts. <laughs> Yeah. He writes the questions and I get to think about it ahead of time. So kind of, uh, hmm. I kind of write the uh, questions. They aren't really questions. They're most of the time they're statements. They are mostly just statements. <laughs> um, so moving on to the next statement, <laughs> what do you think of Sephiroth stealing all of the ships? I love what he gets called like the Goblin King while he's holding supremacy over Mars for a brief period. But what do you think of like the whole maneuver? I thought and that entire more than anything, I was impressed by how nonviolent it was. And like how sneaky it was. They didn't they didn't let out a single shot the entire time. Yeah. And in in conjunction with the Goblin King, also mangy little guardian angel as a mm-hmm. descriptor is, I think, even better. I like that one even better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the callback to just the Goblin and calling mm, him the Goblin King, of course. But I do agree with you. Mangy little guardi- guardian angel is fantastic. So I just think it's interesting. And I think Severo especially in the last two sections of this book and honestly in this entire book so far has really gotten to shine as a character who isn't so much 
I'm not saying he was a side joke in in Golden Sun, but he definitely wasn't a huge focus until kind of Fitchner got revealed. He was he was there, he was around, but he was kind of angry, and he, you know, he was more of a tool, kind of like most of the people in Darrow's lives were in Golden Sun. But here he really gets to shine to be a character, and I, I love all of the kind of heartfelt moments we get. Speaking of heartfelt moments, till Victra, uh, uh what's this? Like, ooh boy. Victra and Severo. Ooh. Um, I Did you see it, that it caught me off guard, but um, ultimately, I, I'm really excited for both of them. I think it's going to be a better if if they remain together. I think it'll be better for both of them. I think that'll kind of take the edge off of Severo, maybe make him a little bit less suicide missiony. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, Victra maybe a little bit less uh sed- seducy towards Tara. <laughs> That's been, that hasn't been on the table for a while though. She hasn't kind of acted in that way since the last book, but No, yeah, she's still a little flirty just in the way that she yeah. talks, but you know. But I, I think it'll focus both of them and I think keep th- keep everything rolling a little bit more smoothly. Yeah. I I also think that the whole conversation about kids that kind of happens right before this and sort of the other lives that they could wish for Darrow talking about, you know, his his potential other life that could have existed with EO and Severo dreaming about children in like a future is an interesting change. Yeah, it is. Certainly. Yeah. Any any other thoughts? Did you did you like it? What did you think? I mean, I think I think there's another conversation about it later, isn't there? No, maybe not. Yeah, I don't think so. I think this no. is this is where we hit it for the most part, I, Severo. But I think that that hit most of the points I was thinking of, though. Like, I, I think um I think both of them being together will level both of them out and they'll be better than the sum of their parts. Though, I think it can raise some complications in war room discussions in that they're going to basically automatically vote together or strain the relationship, which will be either that either they can put things aside and vote independently on decisions or things will get a little dicey when, when decisions That's definitely- are split. That's definitely interesting. You know, in a similar way, Mustang and Darrow are able, they manage to disagree on their own, but they're also very different people. So that's an interesting twist on the whole thing, for sure. The the final part that I really like about this chapter, everything is to like about this chapter, but the final thing I want to talk about is the line that comes surely after the kids bit. You and I keep looking for the light in the darkness, expecting it to appear, but it already has. I touched his shoulder. We're it, Boyo. Broken and cracked and stupid as we are, we're the light and we're spreading. And it's great. Like, it's a, it's a great moment of revelation of, like, they're actually coming off kind of a victory to some degree between the two of them. I mean, obviously, they lost Ragnar. That's a huge deal. But they gained this massive win in an armada and they gained the obsidians. Like, everything's going right for the most part. Right. I think this is truly one of the most important things that they can both realize. It'll It'll keep them sort of on the right path because it's the right path not not them searching for the right path as the mean as a means of salvation it'll it'll i don't know if i'm i don't know if i'm saying this right i'm kind of babbling a little bit what i'm saying is if they realize that they are the light the thing that mm-hmm. they've been searching for and they're spreading it around that will focus them in a way that means that they can keep doing what they're doing, knowing that it's the right thing to do as opposed to searching for whatever is going to make things happen 
and whatever whatever is going to be right for people. Like, they, do you get what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel yeah, like I'm so so to summarize. No, I, you're bit. you're you're definitely onto it. I'd say that they're emboldened. They feel like they can actually make decisions now, mm-hmm. and like they aren't floundering anymore. So right. you know, it's it's kind of they're they've been enabled by their success now a little bit and so they can take the next step a little bit more confidently and realize that it, it's them now that they need to be looking to you know their their decisions are ultimately important as well right it's uh it's great yeah i really like it i think it's really important so moving on to the second chapter <laughs> that we have to talk about uh chapter 36 swill which is just great because the entire chapter is, is everyone's drunk and drinking and having a good time so it's uh it's late at night it's after midnight and everything Vec- victor and several like we had mentioned before are, are seemingly about to meet up uh near several's body and it had a weird sexual connotation which i just i hope not there please dear god uh, but other than that, you know, great for him. Like we'd mentioned oh, yeah. before. I don't great think I have that. anything really new to add there. I think this yeah. is what I was thinking of when I said, I think there's more later on. And yeah. Oh, I thought, I thought you were talking about a different bit about the kids. Um, oh no. I yeah. was just talking about Victor and Severo in general. Yes. Yes, definitely. That makes sense. So we also, so we, we move from that. We entered this moment of storytelling here between Darrow's family and the golds. He's closely become acquainted with, uh, We've got to drink with them since they're drinking here and talking about this. Absolutely. But what do you think of like the family stories? I really kind of like the warm environment of this. I mean, it, it seems it's friendly. It's family. It, this is a family gathering. This reminded me of Christmas at my great aunt's house with my entire extended family, which, by the way, is where I feel the shortest in this world. Um, <laughs> but it's just... Everybody's having a good time. Everybody's mingling and chatting and sharing stories. Sometimes the same stories we've shared every year for the last decade. Like, (laughs) it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's fun. It's family. That's the vibe I got off of this. But uh, drink, motherfucker. I don't know if you heard, but I cracked my beer and took a drink while you were talking. I didn't. I was talking too loud. That's fair. Yeah. No, definitely cheers. And I... I love the moments that are contained here where they're all kind of ranting to each other and they're even debating what story to tell Mustang about a little bit later, (laughs) which is great. They're finishing up a story about the Institute and clearly sharing those stories back and forth. Cavax is feeding Sophocles blueberries, (laughs) 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 which I mean, it just pays to mention, of course, when you're out of jelly beans, you got to do what you got to do. And and I think. Just just to like put a put a pin in something that I think we had talked about a long time ago back in Golden Sun when we were introduced. I think really it's not so much that Cavax is old and brain damaged so much as he fucking loves this fox. Like he <laughs> he loves it like like some people have their pets that are children to them. Yeah. And like your fish are to you. So Fair. yeah. I mean, I think I think very similarly, he just dotes on Sophocles every chance that he can. He definitely, as mentioned, has, you know, gotten bumped on the head a few too many times, but I wouldn't call it, you know, I wouldn't call it the dementia that we were kind of talking about. No, before. I didn't I feel think like dementia. Out, but, I thought well, just fucking manipulation, just fucking wild. <laughs> yeah. Outlandish. I, I wouldn't say he's not wild. He's, he's definitely still crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely love him for that, but he's definitely a little bit more stable than we give him credit for right so i love the story darrow's mom tells about him and the watch like that story is so darrow 
right? Yeah. Um, but I thought it re- it revealed a lot more about his mom than anything mm-hmm. else. I felt like. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I should probably explain. I think it it sort of explains how sentimental she is about things. If you remember earlier, there's the story of the uh, the gloves that Darrow's dad, like Darrow's father's gloves that Darrow mm-hmm. tries to get rid of. And his mom kind of hits him and tells him that uh, they can't afford that. And he has to go get it, get him back. And that always struck me as odd because I felt like it, it, it seemed like she was more sentimental about it than actually worried about the economic impact of giving away the pairs of the pair of gloves um and this kind of reinforced that a little bit the uh the gloves were something that her husband wore every day and they were literally like leather gloves so they were shaped to his hand specifically so that's clearly something that's not easy to let go of but this watch doesn't necessarily have the same utility or shaping that the gloves did so but it is presumably more expensive. So she held on to it, but didn't really protest when it was traded because it was worth it to get the medicine. At the same time, though, she didn't do that herself, even though they were struggling and trying to figure out how they could get money for the for the medicine. She didn't she didn't either didn't think of it or did decided not to trade the watch. And uh, for somebody who comes across as fairly cold and fairly utilitarian, it was nice to see that little bit of warmth warmth and sentiment come through you know i think that that's a great great read pj i I applaud you for that because that's actually not something that i had picked out of that section i always thought of it as more um i guess like i i don't necessarily i see a hundred percent what you're saying about mom and not being willing to take the watch and sort of the sentimentality of that i guess i've always thought of it as kind of like she forgot about it to some degree that could be that's Totally plausible, completely uh, plausible. But, but I don't, I don't think that changes the sort of warmth, right? Because someone who is so utilitarian, like you're saying, would be keeping track of all of the different things to ensure, you know, they they had all of their resources in line so that they knew what they could utilize when they needed to, right? And so I think that you're still, I think, regardless of that read, I think you're still right. Mm-hmm. I guess, I guess, where I was coming from was less that she didn't necessarily keep t- keep track of it and just kind of forgot about it. But more more to the fact that if she was strictly utilitarian and strictly not sentimental about things, that watch would have been gone way, way sooner, like not long after Tara's father died. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. That's a that's a great point. She would have at the very least taken the income. Right. But Tara coming back with it is obviously a sweet serenade to the end of that story and paints him in a positive light that kind of makes everyone kind of hem and haw about how nice and cool and sweet Darrow is and how he almost you know, not telling a story about him, like almost blowing something up or some kind of funny, jokey story, instead telling something very serious. Right. So it's nice. Daxo's interjection about, yes, I would say that was quite a disaster, referring to when Darrow attempted to get Mustang to meet his mom down in the mines previously <laughs> in the last book, was one of the funniest fucking lines <laughs> on this reread that I've experienced. I was like, oh my God, I feel like I skipped over that previously because that is just snark. It's just, yeah. layered with snark but i i really i really thought it was funny we we shortly thereafter also get a moment that happens where mustang kind of explains herself with the telemannis around and they they have a conversation about family and some of those meanings what do you 
what do you make of Daxo and Kavax making making eye contact after Mustang talked about protecting those that she loved? I feel like I have so many answers to that question, and uh, it would be it would collapse into a single question or a single answer if uh, I knew what kind of look they exchange with each other. So if it's a look of sort of love and uh, admiration towards each other, it, it's it could be like them recognizing within themselves that they also protect who they love, and that's looking at themselves or looking at each other. Like, yeah, we we do that for us, too. Um, it could be a look of, I don't know, some kind of scheming or something like that. If this is based on and related to some information that they know about Mustang that Darrow doesn't yet. Like, there, there are just so many different ways that could go. And I think that it's without knowing what kind of look was shared between the two. It's impossible to answer that question. Fair. I mean, hey, good, uh, good little rapid fire there between the the possibilities. I think that it's interesting. Hmm. Thanks for hmm. the the feedback. You're welcome. <laughs> family <laughs> is all that matters. <laughs> you did. You are family. This is Cavax, uh, which I I personally think is is a great great moment here. We talked a long time ago, back at the end of book one. I had mentioned it to you and Bingham, and neither of you reacted with any kind of fanfare. I was so shocked by the the nature of your guys's reaction and i wonder if you feel differently about it now but the fact that like pax was killed because his name was pulled out of a hat the murder hat no that happens sure that seems to be life in general <laughs> like in the real world wow. um so the fact that he was killed out of the hat like pierce in his rough outline had a plan for pax to be a very big deal going throughout this entire series in the telemonises to be like an adoptive second family to him to darrow Right. And finally kind of getting around to this point, we find found a way into the family. You know, it's it's heartwarming knowing some of the outside information, but it's also just heartwarming in general, knowing that the Telemannuses genuinely care. Yeah, they do. About him. Yeah. Do you think that they genuinely care? Do you think they care about by proxy of Mustang? Mm-hmm. I guess that's an important question. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think sure. there's a little bit of both. I think they, they definitely see Mustang as family. And I think Mustang sees them even as more of family than her own actual family is. So I, I think they're close and I think there's a lot of sentiment there. But at the same time, they seem to genuinely agree with the stances that Darrow takes. Good point. And what it means to be a good person. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking more generally about what it means to be a good person. I do think that they align with each other's ideals, which also helps. Uh, just thinking about some of the other families and the way that they kind of line up. Good, good point, especially with the way that they were raised and getting to have family meet family here. I mm-hmm. think that that also shows an alignment of sorts between right. the the Reds, the Telemontes and Mustang. So, right. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Definitely fair. What do you think of the Mustang or not the Mustang? What do you think the of Mustang, Mustang. and the tall? <laughs> the Telemontes analysis of Darrow's plan to take back the cities, to take back Mars, the whole underground operation. What what was their analysis exactly? Let me go back to that. This is on 287. Well, so the Telemonuses were very afraid that the Obsidians were going to wreck the cities, basically, and that right. they were going to be locked in a war with the Sovereign regardless. So there were two different potentials. Raving Warbands form, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, or basically, going to claim problem. the surface. <laughs> they're going to claim the surface, and they're they're going to be in a, in a war with the 
a sovereign. They don't have a good way out of that with with Mars without it under full control. And then Mustangs, real quick, just to summarize where he was, Adrius. Like you're not you're not thinking enough about the jackal. They they seem to be kind of the the people keeping him on track and mm-hmm. sort of the uh, the checks the checks and balances of the decision making process. They they're bringing to table a lot of insight and a lot of knowledge that while Darrow understands and knows all of this, he hit, he is juggling a lot right now and it, things things fall through the cracks. So having somebody to come through and like point out where some flaws are and where issues are, I think is the most important part of any sort of leadership, Darrow included. So I, I think they are solidifying themselves as his counsel. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a great fit for all of them. Yeah, that's a good point. And I do think that they're solidifying their roles as his counsel, especially as golds right within that mm-hmm. circle. They're they're effectively opting themselves in, opting themselves in to be the golds that he chats with and thinks and talks about the most. They appear to have the best grasp of strategy for the most part. I don't want to play down downplay Severo or Victra. But they're more like commanders versus yeah. strategists. Yeah. So, what'd you make of the whole conversation uh, in the background on Adrius about the puzzles and the nightmare oh. of a child that he was? Dude, as soon as she faked losing the puzzle, like losing, I know, I know for a fact, just based on his personality, that he did nothing for the next week. But pour every ounce of concentration into creating the most brutal puzzle he could because he was embarrassed by the fact that his sister feigned being beaded by the by the maze like he any sort of perceived slight against him will be met with the full force of his concentration. Yeah, I think the. The important part here isn't so much that she feigned it. It's more that he was frustrated with the fact that she figured it out in general. No, I think right? it's because she feigned it. So she didn't feign it. She did. She. No. She, what? She found it. After after pretending that she couldn't complete it. She pretended she couldn't couldn't beat the puzzle. And he saw through that. And he's like, no, fucking finish it. And she does. And then next week he comes back with the most most difficult one he's ever come with oh yeah 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 i was i was reading the preamble to that pretended i couldn't right yep yep but it was it was the the punishment that the thing that i was disconnecting was him punishing himself for whenever she would beat him right yeah he would go alone he'd he'd like smile and play coy but really be really fucking pissed off that that happened in the first place to the point of like self-harm right yeah which is bonkers of course and kind of defines the jackal as a strategist it creates a really person. fucking cool villain and his it backstory does. like doesn't it he's <laughs> he's he's fucked he's really fucked it's so cool yeah i i'm i'm very excited once we uh once we event, eventually wrap up this trilogy and we can talk about the whole thing as a as a piece of art mm-hmm. but we aren't there yet so <laughs> we've, we've only got another five chapters to go. So before we finish Jesus. out this chapter and there the word is again, we need to assure that you're not aiming to at being a dictatorship or a full democracy in the case of victory. Kind of the, the sentiment of Daxo and the insurance policy of what's to come after this succeeds. So full democracy is an interesting term 
And you pointed out with the K at at some point, I can't remember when, you pointed out that that kind of lends itself to Greek democracy. Fun fact, I believe it was from the Discord server, Blood Silver, who pointed it out to me and was like, oh, you totally missed that. And I was like, oh, duh, that's what it is. Um, and then I mentioned it on an episode, but did not properly credit. So there's your credit. Um, but yeah. Okay. It might it might have not even been on an episode. You might have just been talking to me. It was definitely... I got I got corrected on it in the Discord at one point. Okay. I know I did. Gotcha. Which Sounds is why good. I mentioned it in the episode. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All good. Anyway. Um so it it'd be interesting to see the the distinction in their eyes of what full democracy versus what just a standard democracy would be like. As far as sort of a full democracy, I would assume would refer to a an entirely popular vote with no sort of representation beyond strictly one vote is one vote is one vote, regardless of who you are, um, mm-hmm. versus having sort of a Senate or a, a piecemeal representation. I think, I think a sort of a representative Senate-based democracy seems to make the most sense for everyone involved and for what the stated goals of the Sons of Ares are. But I'm sure there are a lot of Reds that would rather have, like Dancer, I think, would rather have just a flip of the pyramid, knowing that knowing that they're the most populous as Reds, they're going to win a popular vote every time. Yes, of course, because they've got the most numbers, right? So there's there's a that's that's kind of what they're ensuring is that there's some form of representation. There isn't really a firm answer here on what they're seeking. They're just trying to ensure that either they aren't going single-minded with Darrow as some kind of dictator, or I think, I think I agree with you on the read of the full democracy being everyone gets a single vote on every single issue. Yeah. Which of course would mean that some red, people would- Red read. just rules. Right, right. Which is majority rules, which is the way most systems, you know, in theory work. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, chapter 37, The Last Eagle. And I just had a mental moment of- clarification here he's not technically the last eagle right like i understand his mom married into the family took the last name everything like that she's a bologna by marriage which i guess makes him the last blood eagle bologna but i don't i don't know if i fully um is she useful at all (laughs) why does use (laughs) determine whether or not you have a last name (laughs) like no 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 you're still no but if you're as far as the imposing attribution of a of an animal towards you, like these, this seems to be sort uh, of a you're wartime talking about a metaphor. Got yes, it. You're, like you're the, about the, the use of the animal seems to be sort of a wartime metaphor for each of the members of each house. So if they're out of the out of the fight, so to speak, what? what use do they have and sure and sure. is it really worth calling them or taking them into account yeah which i think is the point uh, here i don't know she's no iona bologna so <laughs> <laughs> Ed <Edward, laughs> <man. Okay. laughs> uh ridiculous so <laughs> I I really how much I really shit do like, you think Pierce Brown has got for that fucking name? You know it's really funny, and this is maybe you know we have we have a couple of longtime listeners. Um, some of them participate in some of the 
the uh, Hail Reaper Trivia Nights. And I got a message from one, um, I believe it was Donna, who messaged me and said that she got a question before anyone else did because she listens to our show and said that she will never forget I own a bologna because <laughs> of all the jokes we made about it and how we say it, like, which is great. <laughs> Do other Love. People, do people pronounce it a different way? I don't know, but I think most people forget it because it's just <laughs> you know it's something it's something that's it's 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 a minor detail, and we really like to dig into all of the minor details. That's it's <sighs> what we, we like to make fun of people's of names. Here. Is really what it is. Also that, and it's rhymey, so I'm not going to not rhymey it. Yeah, well, <laughs> you, you know. Okay, poet. You know, yeah. I'm not Roke, though. Fuck mm. you guys. <laughs> you see where I was really offended with that. Um, <laughs> so, anyway. I still, uh, I'll still hold on to that one. Fuck. Okay, so, getting into chapter 37. Uh, the seat of the infirmary is just haunting. When Darrow finally makes his way over to Cassius's bed, before they wheel him away somewhere private to discuss what he, you know, called him there to talk about, the, the whole scene is... It's a dramatic shift from the joy of the last scene to this very, like, dark side of war. Yes, but at the same time, you still get the same sentiment from Darrow. You get the same interaction. He takes as much time as he can to interact with the people that are infirmed. Like, yes, he, he, yeah. he laments about not being able to interact with every single one of them, mm-hmm. which I, I think that's, while it's a different demeanor of the room and a different mood in the room itself... I think that is a bit of consistency that I, I think is worth holding on to and worth noting how mm-hmm. and it shows through his leadership as well and, and through his goals and through everything about his personality. But seeing it in action that he, he cares about everyone that he what would you call it employs at this point leads leads. Yeah. Follows him. Yeah. Either way. But beyond that, just everyone in general, he, he has compassion for. Yeah, I I think the part that I get hung up on to some degree inside of this chapter, inside of that little piece, is them all reaching out to him and a lot of the other sort of mystery and mythos surrounding Darrow feels very messianic. He feels like he was a martyr that came back to life because that's kind of what happened to some degree. In, he didn't literally come back eyes, to life. He, but he is. Yeah, I I think that there's definitely a component of that that's laced throughout this story in particular, and he has this. But we're 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 also trapped in his perspective, and he doesn't think like that at all, right? right. He doesn't think himself a messianic figure. He mostly thinks he's a fuck up and is mostly confused I mean, about he's, what he's doing. He's, he's got the ultimate right. imposter syndrome. Yeah, he's also right. He's a fuck up, <laughs> <laughs> and he is confused. Yeah, I mean, but I think you'll see that with most people. If if you see any sort of hero from their perspective, the the thing about compelling stories is not how heroic they are. It's how human they are while doing heroic things. Without a doubt. I can't say it any better, so we're going to move to the next question statement. So, excellent work. We'll put a pin in that. PJ is the one coming with all the insight now. I'm just going to boom, let him talk to himself. Uh, yes, this is what I want, Crossland. <laughs> I, know, I am trying to figure out. <laughs> did you did you listen to? <laughs> no, I just came back into it. When oh, you were right, talking right, right, still. Right. So yeah, I was I still talking. Um, uh, but I've been I've been toying with the idea of finding a new co-host. <laughs> but I think I could just do it myself. PJ, we still have PJ. We five still chapters have to cover. Five chapters left to do. See, I can do your and voice we're perfectly. At over an hour now. <laughs> we have so much to go. <laughs> so. 
Uh, <laughs> that was a good call, though. It was about my voice perfectly. So, what did you think about the initial dialogue exchange between the two? The first real, like, friendly, and I put that in quotes, like, friendly air quotes banter we've seen them have since the institute I mean, what do you think friendly is so so beyond what this was like this this is not not explicitly oh, hostile no this is not explicitly hostile and like that's the best thing you could say about it you know like they're <laughs> they're Agreed, not actively yes. trying to kill each other for i don't for know if that counts as friendly I, I think I think it's worth worth backing up a second even and saying that this is the first time that Cassius isn't trying to kill Darrow since he had just emerged from the box technically is the only other time. But that'd how many be like times have they run into each other since the end of the first book? It's been um, several, right? The yeah, I'm Cassius gonna just, is like really out. bad at keeping his blood oaths. Well, that's fair. <laughs> Darrow also isn't very good at following up on gold culture, so like, that's he's also, also very fair. bad <laughs> at keeping his blood oath, <laughs> blood war, blood feud. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, yes, this isn't friendly necessarily, but there is still a kinship that's here that isn't there later in this chapter. I think, or in this section. I think a lot of that comes out in reading into it after knowing what, what Darrow said about Cassius and why he's not, why he didn't kill him right away. So you you get that sort of train of thought and put yourself into that mindset. But if you don't do that, I think it just kind of comes across as business. Yes, I think I think a lot of the emotions to say a lot of the emotion is is subtext and might be reading into it more than what's actually there. We're going to keep talking about that emotion and that subtext, though, because that's what we're here for, PJ. Fair enough. So literally the next question I'm here for destruction and war, though. (laughs) <laughs> well, maybe next week. So it's great how much the section lends to building Cassius's character, though. You know, like it it very much serves as a backbone to why he is the way that he is or what he, why he chooses to do what he what he does. Ultimately, he's asked the question, why serve her? And he replies duty. And that's just one of many examples over the course of this that shows that das- Cassius, I almost said Dacius. Cassius still has a moral backbone and an obligation. I think that makes it even stronger. Um, knowing that he went through the Institute and uh, maintained some level of leadership through most of it is kind of astonishing in that respect because he is so determined and so so much a follower. He, he is such a follower that he will lead as a means of winning because that's what he was told to do. And then immediately go into sort of lapdog territory. And that's, it's kind of, it's not odd, but it is um, unique to him in this respect. There aren't many that do the same thing, that were in the same position that he was in. You know, anybody who was a leader at the Institute kind of maintains themselves as, as some sort of leader outside of the Institute. Yeah, yeah. But I think. And I'm, I'm trying to extrapolate this from what you're saying. Cassius also chooses to follow and be a servant. That's what I'm saying. Time. Yeah. yeah like he's, the, he's got a moral time. obligation that transcends his individual needs or wants, it feels like. Whereas Roke, and we're just going to pull at the end here for a little bit, but whereas Roke is very driven by his own moralistic revenge and he uses whatever means he can to morally justify it. 
Yeah, but at least that's you his know? own moral compass, as opposed to someone else's. Oh, as opposed to as opposed to Cassius being driven by someone else's and being a follower. Yeah, sure, that's fair. Yeah, but that's because he believes in duty to the society. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dichotomy between the two because I think Roke uses the society as an excuse for why he behaves the way he does, and Cassius kind of stands proudly and says, "I do this because for the society, for the society." Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting comparison. It is certainly. It's, it's definitely an interesting component. Came out a little like the side of my mouth. There's so much in this chapter. It's so small, but there's so much to talk about. Uh, did the sons of Ares? So this is a quote from Cassius. Did the sons of Ares rob a de- deep space asteroid warehouse in March, several days after your escape, about four months ago? Your replies. Be more specific. Designation S 1988 silicate based junk asteroid. So, fun fact. This is actually a type of junk asteroid. So S designates the S type of asteroid. The number that follows generally has to do with just nomenclature that we establish to point at asteroids and say, that's number one, that's number two, that's number three. Uh, Based on their discovery, S is a very common type of asteroid. There are subfamilies within this. 1988, though, there is no 1988. And so that's where my brain went. Why is there no 1988? And so... I went and I looked up Pierce Brown's birth date and it's 1988. So I'm going with this is not confirmed. This is pure speculation. But S 1988 is that way because it lines up with Pierce Brown's birthday year. That's just uh, just an assumption here. That makes sense. That's pretty cool, though. 1988 had a lot of really good books come out, too, but none of them really started with S that were relevant. So I kind of shook my head and gave it a pass because I thought that could be what it was, but it's not at all. Gotcha. So. That was where my brain leaned, but nope, nothing there. However, we have to finish out that thought. There are 500 nuclear warheads that were stored at designation S-1988, and they were stored in case the Ash Lord ever needed to repeat Rhea. The depot lies between the core and the rim, and they're missing. Hmm. Um, so this, this little bit prompted me to look into the nuclear arsenal of the United States of America. Uh, take a take a stab at the number of nuclear missiles or nuclear warheads that the U.S. has. I'm going to say what I said before, and that's like I 300, uh, 5,800. <laughs> 2,000 wow. of them have been decommissioned and are awaiting, which I think disassembly. was an Obama presidency thing. I think so. Uh, so, okay. but I mean that's been a a long time. For them to still not be mm-hmm. disassembled. And these are confirmed in text. They're 30 megatons each. 36, That we're I talking think. about with these. 36. It says, it says 30. Does it say 30? Okay. It says 30, yeah. Uh, so that's significantly stronger than any of the ones that, that the U.S. has. Um, the U.S.'s biggest ones are 1.2 megatons. Wow. So although this is 500 versus 5,600, that's still more. Total power, mass. Total power. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, and I think it should be discussed, but the largest nuclear explosion ever by force was Sarbumba. Sarbumba. Uh, by, by Russia, it was an H-bomb, hydrogen bomb, and that was 50 megatons, which is more than these, but incredibly expensive, ridiculous to produce, and largely unnecessary. And there's been one. And there's been one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they tested it, and that was very close to everyone shuddering and going like, oh, fuck, we shouldn't do this to each other. Um <laughs> 
Like, just because we can doesn't mean we should, which is also what was happening here, though, is this is very much a case of, like, why the fuck would you do this? And the defense that the Sovereign provided, the Cassius Parrots, is in case the Ash Lord ever needed to repeat Rhea. And yeah, um, fuck Octavia. So going going forward a little bit, just because this is relevant, there's the conversation where Roke is saying that this is just in case, like this is just a preventative measure. I'm assuming that the 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 Lords of the Rim Moons, or like mm-hmm. the the Rim the Rim Lords, I guess, um, were part of the conversation where they decided that five megatons would be the cap. I would guess. Yes, for intership warfare, it's a part of the compact, I believe. Right, but yep. But as far as deciding that five megatons would be the cap, I would assume that they'd be part of it, and like that was an agreement made on behalf of the Rim Lords. So for Roke to just kind of cavalierly say, "Oh, that's just in case of us needing it," is complete. Like even if, even if they're like not wary of them using it against them which fucking why would you not be wary of that that's still directly counter to whatever pact they made right yes it is definitely counter whatever pact they made it's also you know i mean i really like this little line from darrow repeat Rhea. that's who you serve a woman who stores enough nuclear warheads to destroy a planet just in case (laughs) which is yeah yeah like my god i for some reason in my brain i've got a lock in my head that they had a cap on the warheads being at like five megatons and only 20 of them there's some arbitrary rule that's in my head there that was established in the compact and this is just so far except exceeding that because they thought that they could get away with it and hide it that <sighs> completely invalidates a yeah. lot of that perspective but i, I guess changes my point is that darrow could even say you're right. We falsified falsified this like footage, but they still went went against your compact, mm-hmm. and still probably sway the sway the lords of the rim. Yeah, sway Romulus and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a nightmare for sure here. So we find out why he's decided to pass the information, which I think is ultimately the most important part. And that's because the Jackal is weaseling his way into usurp control from the Sovereign, either by force, by of nuclear annihilation, political machinations, or through sheer economic willpower because he's also stealing all of the helium-3 off the top and, and skimming that too just for kicks. <laughs> just absolutely devious machinations. And my question for you is, do you think that he would use the nukes? Against people? Uh, yes. Yes, I think he'll use the fucking nukes, Crossland. <laughs> what? what part of his personality makes you think that maybe he'd hesitate in using the nukes? I think he would... I think he's so fucking trigger-happy with the nukes that, like, he has cut off his own thumb at some point to stop himself from, from launching the nukes. Like... Of anybody in this entire story that could be using nuclear weapons, I think he is number one on the list. Yeah. What kind of fucking question is that? Yeah, it's, it's the necessary <laughs> one, PJ. Don't don't scream at me. Well, don't I ask had to stupid ask questions. It. Well, I you know, like I knew th- I knew the answer. We all know the fucking answer. Yeah. The Jackal, of course, is going to use of the nukes. 
the question really comes down to how and when and why. Um, and there, there's worthy speculation here, too, about Harmony yeah. and the nukes that she may or may not have or that may or may not have gone off. And all of the various propaganda insinuations. Has he been testing them? Was it Harmony? Is he giving it to the Red Legion? What's going on there? Well, we know from context from when they saw the nukes go off that they it was in a populated area. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember what it was off the top of my head, but it was not in like an empty, deserted test area. Correct. Mm-hmm. It was it was within a city, I think, on a northern peninsula for yeah, some reason. Exactly. Or southern, whatever it was. It was away, but it was still populated. My thought is that he is quietly ceding the nukes to the Sons of Ares, or not to the Sons of Ares, to the Red Legion, as a means mm-hmm. of discrediting any sort of uprising in the eyes of the general populace, as well as, I don't know, sowing more chaos. It will allow him the freedom to exercise probably even more powers. And I don't know, I, I, I think... That the Red Legion exerting atrocities across the Mars landscape will give him the justification of acting against all all of Red uprisings in harsh, swift retribution. retribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call. So that's mm. what that's my thought. Is I know our, our thoughts on Harmony having the nukes are strictly based on a speculation at the time of the nukes going off and that's it. Like they haven't approached it since then and they didn't have any information. They just literally saw two nukes go off and somebody said that could be harmony mm-hmm. and that was it. But I think yeah, there, sense. there wasn't full context. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a nightmare to sort out, but we, uh, we're pretty sure the jackal has him. So may have given them to harmony. Harmony. I don't think he, as we know, is I think he dick. gave him like gave harmony, like a couple nukes. Yeah, yeah, not gave them all, but yeah, like, but like through several proxies, gave them the opportunity to find these nukes. You know, like pulling the strings like he does as the fucking jackal puppet master. Of course. So, chapter thirty-eight, the bill, and this is interesting because the title chapter has previous merit in conversations that have been had with Lorne and even within this book, pull the quote from it. Uh, the bill, as Lorne often said, comes at the end. Now the pixies pay. And that was on 199 of this book. So it was, you know, almost 100 pages ago at this point. With that in mind, this chapter feels very looming, like it has long term implications. Yeah, like this is this is literally the itemized check of of what you've done and what you owe. <laughs> Yeah, they're not collecting yet, but you're getting the bill right now. Yep. So interesting, interesting based on all of the things that we've dealt with so far. Anyway, the screaming match that this chapter starts out with over the nukes is just absolute chaos and wonderful. And I love it. Everyone's freaking shit because Adrius has nukes like they should. (laughs) But it's it's still great. (laughs) I enjoy it. Oh, yeah, as you should. He created chaos. It's great. It's a good time. Mm-hmm. Severo and everyone else having having some bullshit banter about the insane man having nukes. I mean, it, it just makes sense. What if Severo so, had that entire stockpile of nukes? That would be interesting. Oh, um, what if Severo has the entire stockpile of nukes? 
and has I kept would, that from Darrow. I would love to think that. It was kind of hinted at that Quicksilver had been raiding a lot in the in the outer regions, but I don't feel like I mean maybe there's a machination there. Hmm. Hmm. So we're we're in a meeting with all of these primary members, his, you know, his up close and personal people that he spends all this time with, kind of thinking and talking about what the next steps are going to be. So First off, before we get into that, we talk about 208 Lacrimosa, and 208 Lacrimosa is double the size of Phobos, PJ. Did you know? Double the size. Twice. <sighs> sorry, sorry. Twice the diameter of Phobos. Oh, shit. So, it's much bigger. That is much bigger. Right, like, that's nuts. It's stupid. I just constantly, <laughs> every single time... I hear an asteroid name in this fucking book i'm googling it immediately or a moon or anything i'm like how big is it <laughs> hashtag to phobos. justice for phobos <laughs> justice for phobos also <laughs> i think that phobos maybe isn't a moon by qualifications like we call it a moon because it's a satellite and stays in orbit but i i don't know it feels more like a rock flying through the sky i mean what else are we we're a really big rock but big compared to what? Compared Phobos. to Phobos. <laughs> I <guess>. Got him. <laughs> Got him. That's some serious hashtag planetary body I mean, envy. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, fuck. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, uh, I got stuck on this. So, uh, Lacrimosa, we'll, we'll jump back to reality. Lacrimosa, which is mentioned here, but not directly connected, is also shorthand for Our Lady of Shadows, or Sorrows, not Shadows which is also the title for Mary, Jesus's mother, and the name in, in the Christian faith, and the name of the pirate cove, actually in the world, because it doesn't the faith doesn't actually connect because he was a person. Anyway, regardless, Mary, Jesus's mother, is frequently referred to as Our Lady of Sorrows. So, Lacrimosa, hmm. shorthand. He actually did kind of explain that here on page without the Mary thing, but didn't like directly connect the two, if that makes sense. He doesn't like point to one and say it's called Our Lady of Sorrows because it's Lacrimosa, but you hmm. know, uh, here we are. Okay, Justice. I for believe you. <laughs> what do you think of everyone's distrust of Mustang inside of the room? I feel like we've talked about this a lot, and <laughs> I feel like every time I feel like you've asked this exact question a lot, and every time I have the same answer in that. I think she's been consistent. I think that she has proven herself. And I think that Victra has experienced the same sort of trial without need. Like she, they've both been blamed for their siblings and their parents unnecessarily. And I, I think that of anyone, Mustang is the one that has proven herself to be loyal and trusting and consistent and predictable within within her own moral like stances on things. I would I would agree. I think that that is a fine point, I guess. <laughs> I think my okay. trouble with it. I think my trouble with it is that Victra went through hell to earn her place at the table and is now giving Mustang hell to earn her place at the table. And yeah, I agree seems, with you. That seems like a dick move. Yeah, but like nobody was batting for Mustang until Roke Roke was. And we know that Roke basically bats zero. So like, why? Why was he doing anything? I don't know. Should we trust someone's rogue opinion? And I think the other part of this, too, is that intentionally the book is trying to sow 
kind of a discordant note with Mustang. Like, should we trust Mustang? And I feel like you've generally landed on the side of yes, Mustang has done nothing wrong. I haven't gotten gotten that vibe at all. I've gotten the vibe Mm. of nobody trusts Mustang, but they probably should because things would be so much smoother if they just trusted her. Correct. My point was I was saying what you were you were getting to, which is that you trust Mustang. I think the book does not trust Mustang textually. No, I think people, that I think the book don't. is leaning too far into maybe we shouldn't trust her. <laughs> yeah, well, that I agree with your spooky voice. So <laughs> like it, it, it seems overbearing in that respect, mm-hmm. like trying to throw us off and trying to make us question it, even though I don't think right. it's I don't think it's something that we we really need to question. That's fair. What'd you make of the discussion around torture that's had truly thereafter Mustang solidifies her place at the table? Um, has she solidified her, her place at the table, Crossland? PJ, I'm giving you your point. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> no, I want to know. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I thought it was interesting. I thought uh, I, you and I talked about this ahead of time a little bit with Quicksilver kind of using using torture as a tool. And realizing that there's a place for it and there's a need for it and it it you it will provide answers in certain situations better than any other means of discussion. And yes, it is just called torture a means of discussion, which isn't technically wrong, but is maybe a little bit crass. Crass is the is the right word. I mean it's not it's not your fault. The book obviously asks the questions, right? So you I the agree questions. with you. Well, yeah, but the book poses the question. Okay. I, I I liked Quicksilver's take as well, treating it more as a panacea and less as a Swiss army knife, right? Because it, it should not be used. And by Swiss army knife, I mean used all the time for any various implement that it needs to be at any point and more as the a very selective tool. Yeah, right. As opposed to something that is for a very specific cause, need, service. And so yeah. that's where... I leaned into the idea that, yeah, he's he's kind of right. And ultimately, it's funny because he even justifies what Darrow and Severo were going to do to Mateo, his fucking husband, uh, to give give away where Quicksilver was. Like, it, it's interesting because they probably wouldn't have gone so far that they would need to kill him. He probably would have given him up easily. But he kind of well, forgives the idea in true capitalist he, libertarian he fashion. He didn't give like he didn't forgive or anything like that. All he said was it would have been effective. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like right. he he didn't say He's anything emotionally either it. way. All he said was that if if they would have tortured Mateo, he would have given up his location eventually mm-hmm. had he not passed out. Yeah. So like there we can read into that as much as we want, but I don't think it was him I don't think it was him giving them a pass on it necessarily but at the same time he was kind of understanding of it okay all right all right he he's definitely understanding of it of course as he's as he's going forward he's like i understand why you would do such a thing and that's also why he's saying that maybe we should consider what severo is saying in terms of torturing cassius and severo perks up of course but victor definitely has the last word inside of the situation when she shows her back and the scars that she's earned and the scars that she's received. And basically without saying too much or doing too much or really making, I don't know, she's clearly making a statement, but without 
outright decrying torture. She basically says no via body language and movement, right? Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know how else to put it. Like she's she does say words, yes, but almost without words, she decries the idea. Right, that's true. So meanwhile, I mean, Dancer and Mustang are kind of having their conversations, and Severo has a fucking sideshow puppet show <laughs> that is just so fucking funny. I. I am just so happy for Severo to be allowed to be the shit poster that he is in all of these meetings. He talks about screwdriver in Cassius's hand in like three minutes or like 30 minutes with a buzzsaw. He'll get him. And then he does this fucking puppet show. And I I just fucking die of laughter every time. <laughs> this time in particular, it killed me. The way that he like pops up one hand and then he pops up the other hand. <laughs> and it's just it's so I mean, you good. Can, you can see it happening. Like, Mm -hmm. it makes it kind of sound a little bit more dramatic the way that it's described. But, like, I know for a fact that you've done the same thing in just Mm -hmm. kind of a, let's posit that we're having this conversation. Oh, what's going to happen here? Oh, I don't know what's going to happen here. (laughs) Like, right. That's just, I mean, people do that. But the way it's described, but the way it's described is fucking perfect. It's really well done. It's, It's so good so good but i just i i know for I a fact it. that you and i have done that to each other before and oh without a doubt like without a doubt we'll summarize each other's thoughts by just going bah, 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 bah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll just be the move um but yeah it's man i laughed out loud this time and i think that as we mentioned before sephiro gets so much more growth inside of this book in particular and he becomes or he's becoming a very real highlight mm-hmm. of the book yeah yeah it's um it's pretty fantastic. So with that, we move on from the puppet show, of course, to the clear two sides of the different argument that we've already discussed, Dancer versus Mustang. And they they stand for the same end goal to some degree, right? They both want freedom from the society. Mustang sees it as allowing lower colors to do as they wish to not be a part of this oppressive system. Dancer sees it as getting rid of the gold hierarchy entirely as much as possible and for allowing colors, low colors that have been repressed forever, higher and greater levels of equality. I'm not doing this perfectly, and I understand that. Don't tear me apart for this, fans. But effectively, those are portions of the arguments that they're making. Right. Um, I think there's... I, I know this isn't what we're necessarily trying to analyze here, but I think there's a decent amount of of middle ground here. And I don't think that either of their thoughts or stances are mutually exclusive. Um, I think that given some more calm time to really talk about things, they could come up with a, a path forward that would satisfy both of them perfectly well, but that's not, not the position they're living in right now. So it seems at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are on different ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. and I think they ultimately both have good intentions. And I think that that's basically what you're saying is outside of the textual comparisons of where they're obviously arguing, they could meet at similar points, even though they might disagree on the minutia. Right. Yeah. So after kind of their arguments that dissolve into uh, paraphrasing, we get to the plan. Darrow wants to go to the rim, fight Roke and Antonius fleets like a raving pack of hungry wolves, like any good guerrilla warfare tactician might, knowing that that is potentially their strength, chooses 
to do so. So that is ultimately what we move into with the plan going forward. You think this is a good plan? I mean, I feel like it's kind of necessary, but yeah, yeah, I think it's a good plan. I think they need, they need the rim because the rim offers containment for the core just by existing to a certain extent. You can press in from there. It it offers a lot of strategic advantage or advantages. Yeah, I mean, I guess the difference is obviously the core has more potential opportunities to spin out to the rim like we've talked about before, but the advantages of having the rim on your side is obviously numbers, right? So deciding to go there, fight for potentially winning over the rim to join their forces, to join up with Orion and everyone else, takes the ball into a different court and surprises everyone, right? It's a good it's a good idea. Right. It's a good move. Exactly. So, chapter 39, The Heart. Chapter 39, The Heart. We'll just start off with a quote here that struck me from Darrow. It makes me smile thinking about how much happier Fitchner would be knowing the greatest endeavor of his legacy was to save lives instead of to take them. And I think that that's fantastic as far as it goes with evacuating and moving people out of Tinos for the most part, taking as many of these people away as they can and not choosing to proceed with the underground drilling take up the city's operation that would have resulted in long-term martian devastation it certainly tracks i think that in any situation fitchner wishing to save lives as opposed to taking them would have rang true that i think that quote is something to be revered as truth yeah it's it's also great because here we are standing with dancer staring out over all of these various decisions that are happening and being made to help the sons of Ares. And to free and extend, free isn't necessarily the right word, but to extend the legacy of Bryn, his wife, I think, I think they were married, wife, just that much further. And that's just, it feels like an ode. And I really think this line, for whatever reason this time, made me think and reflect about how much in this book I kind of miss Fitchner's presence. Because his his whole thing, like, yes... He and Severo share a lot of different qualities, but ultimately he's got a layer of thickness and wisdom to him that stretched beyond just kind of the humor that Severo has and sort of the, the brotherly relationship that was there. It it just opens up a different context that I feel like to some degree this book is missing because Darrow and Severo are now the light that are spreading like we talked about earlier. Um, so I, I agree with you to a certain extent, but at the same time, I don't think there would have been much of a book if Fitchner was still alive because those nine or those, that year of, um, Darrow being missing and presumed dead for the nine months of it or whatever it was, I think he would have just kind of started over. I don't think he would have taken further action. I don't think he would have mounted any sort of army. I don't think Fitchner would have done much of anything other than lay back, back up a little bit, be quiet, draw as little attention as possible, and start training another infiltrator. I think you have yeah. to. Like, and and that, I, that's not conducive to a story to jump into, you know? I guess the usefulness of this argument ends at the triumph of Darrow at the end of Golden Sun, right? Yeah. there There is space for the conversation of what... Because the world at large at the end of Golden Sun knows that he's Fitchner before he's even executed, right? Because he saves Darrow, even if Darrow gets caught and Fitchner for some reason doesn't die. That sends us on a very different 
complete track of the story. I don't feel like Fitchner would have completely given hope up hope on Darrow, a la a lot of his friends. But I do think that at a certain point, he would have given up like you're saying. Yeah. I just don't think of it so immediately. I'm I'm thinking more about his presence as a character, but also yeah, that's fair. ideologically, I understand where you're coming from and where where that fits into the plot. Right. Yeah. It it's it's just it's comforting to also reflect back and think about Fitchner in moments like these and be like, ah, yes, okay. The the voice of semi reason, but also ship posty miss you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. And yeah, I mean, I just uh this this part is very reminiscent to, for me to the part in Red Rising where Darrow and Fitchner are standing atop, not not Darrow and Fitchner, Darrow and Dancer are standing atop the and looking over the skyline and all of the lights and everything else in the distance, and they're kind of having that very open and frank conversation while taking a swig out of a taking a swig of alcohol back and forth and whatnot. Mm-hmm. It just feels like it's got that same sense of hominess to the whole scene and. I, I really like the line, maybe that's just the nature of us, ever wishing for things that were and could be rather than things that are and will be. And I feel like out of the entire book, that is a great line that encaps- encapsulates humanity and sort of anxiety in the way that we think about the future. Yeah. And love it for, for what it is. I, mean, I think you'd hit the nail on the head and encapsulates like humanity in general. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. This this like little little tiny chapter that's tucked in here is filled filled with a number of great reflections. It's um, in Morningstar more than Golden Sun. We get a combination of monologue and action that feels a lot more balanced than Golden Sun or Red Rising were like the, the action to monologue. Monologue was a little bit over top in Red Rising initially. And then Golden Sun goes action heavy with good internal monologues that make sense and external character development. And then so far with Morningstar, it kind of strikes a balance between the two because there is a lot of changing from war crimes, torture. (laughs) I mean, all kinds of things that are going on here inside of our characters' heads. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know if I have a whole lot to add to that, but sure. That that was was more of a general, that was more of a general thought. So you were a good man, says Dancer. Yeah. Then why do I want to do bad things? Says Darrow. And I, again, like, I think this gets back to a critical difference in character that we see is that Darrow's conversations with Lorne really kind of harken back to that sense of the sort of, what's the word? Distant warrior. Okay. One one that's, you know, been forlorn isn't the right word even, but like actually is sorrowful of his actions and other things like that. And he's like, God, like. I want to do bad things because that's what I'm so good at. This is this is what I found out that I'm good at. And I want to take out this violence because I know that I'm good at violence. And he's just kind of questioning that out loud with the one person that he feels like he can question that with. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can get behind. It's that. an interesting conversation between the two. Right. So to wrap up the chapter, did you make anything of the sudden conversation that stopped between Mustang and Deanna, Darrow's mom? Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking it's something, uh, something romancy. I don't know. That's the that's just the just the feeling I'm getting off of it. I think this is something kind of like uh, Mustang asking for the maternal p- permission to court her son. I don't know. It could be. It could be. Is is that where you're? 
That's where, where that's where my mind's going. Okay. I don't know. Because I don't, I don't know what else they could really have other than just kind of sharing stories of of Darrow back and forth. But that seems not necessarily like on target for what I think that either of them would do. Some sort of surprise for Darrow is what I think. Maybe it's a birthday party. I don't know. Fine. A birthday party? <laughs> Are you for real on the birthday party? <laughs> oh, my God, you know what? man. You know what? No, I'm I am for real on that. I am putting that as a prediction. I will I will wager a drink on that one. I think it's a birthday party or something you think similar. It's a, birthday party. a similar birthday slash anniversary slash some sort of milestone annual event party. Fine. That is the, that is the thing that a mom would do. So And a friend. <laughs> a really close friend. Mustang, just a close friend? Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> so with that, and maybe future <laughs> moving <wife>. on. <laughs> that's, that's that's where I thought you were going. Uh, I was going to say, like, they definitely made like partnership references in the last section we were talking about. So I don't know what, what you're missing out on here. Anyway, moving into the next section, I know we breezed over that one. That's because thankfully it's only three pages. Woo. Chapter 40, Yellow Sea. The definition of Io, the planet, is just wonderful. I love the harsh reality of the desert and the volcanic descriptions of this planet, the moon lords associated with it, the underground tidal poles that provide water and everything else, and kind of the way that it's a breadbasket, despite the surface being mostly desertous, unless it's underneath the the shields that provide for the population. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating to me. What did you think of the history associated with the people here as well? tying that in uh just kind of the shaped by nuclear radiation kind of deal or their personal like views of themselves as being as close as as anybody else to the iron golds what in Mm -hmm. what respect do you mean i i guess my my thought was more and and i think that this rolls forward into some of the other context that's provided for in the next section. And so I think we'll get into it on the whole, but I think it it's important to think about kind of the the way that they've changed and elongated, the way their biology is a little bit different even. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's the ego that goes with being like the iron golds and kind of that perception, that pride. And then you've got the sort of interesting divergences in they they aren't different species. They're still golds there's still divisions of human but they're definitely different planetary sex we don't like have that broken up we don't have that sort of um kingdom broken out yet for what people are in different planets and how they might change and stretch and whatnot to adapt to reality but it's consistently described how these folks have eyes that are a third larger than regular humans yeah it's interesting it's super cool and i'm i'm excited to hear more about about it but i didn't i didn't without the history behind it i don't have a lot to glean from it i guess i do know that like humanity has evolved fairly significantly from what we know as humans today so i i think being in a completely different environment lends itself to evolving in whatever ways most beneficial to them on this on this moon in this environment but yeah, it could also I mean, just be mutation. That's going to happen. Right. It, I, I think it is mutation over time. It's not It's not carvers. It's it's mutation based on the description. Yeah. It's um. It's definitely interesting. 
How do you feel about Sefi here? As are are you as nervous as Darrow and Mustang are about her? No, not <laughs> okay. at all. I think uh, I think she can handle herself, and I think unlike a lot of people in that sort of brooding show of force position that she's kind of in right now, she also knows when to be quiet. <laughs> she's yep. intimidating. She's going to be a show of force, but she's also adapt enough and quiet enough to be. Uh, acceptable in in the way of diplomacy she's definitely a very unique character she is very much (laughs) so and she circles her food which is super fucking cool or i don't know what she perceives as maybe potentially her food (laughs) her food yeah (laughs) i mean vila raw i guess yeah (laughs) how she's just like circling around her Mm -hmm. menacingly Obviously, Darrow is still waiting around because he's being basically stood up by Romulus and the other Moon Lords who are supposed to meet him here. And ultimately, he's sort of sitting there speculating. And this wonderful line arrives, which is, if the need arises, I've got myself a psychotic goblin, goblin sized fighter pilot and fighter jet, fighter jet, which is fucking hilarious. Right. As a as a comparison, because similarly, Ragnar used the exact same rocket launcher to take down Cassius' ship just, less than 100 pages ago. It makes me think of, oh, fuck, what what Spider-Man movie was it with the Green Goblin? Spider-Man 1 was it the was it one? 3. Okay. Yeah. That's that's what I'm imagining with several on grav boots with a fucking rocket launcher is just the Green Goblin wreaking havoc. Yeah. Sorry, I mean, missile launcher, not rocket launcher, just fucking missile launcher. You know, to some degree, same difference. We'll take it. Um, but yeah, I I definitely agree with you. I think that it's it's hilarious as of an image. Like it's a it's a wonderful image image image. Mm-hmm. We love Severo. We love Severo. It's as though we like took a shot off air, but we didn't. And we're stumbling all of a sudden. It's fine. Yep. So I guess I guess uh, going back to the missile versus rocket launcher thing, when I think of a rocket launcher, I think of an RPG, mm-hmm. whereas a missile launcher, I think of like, I don't know, the the missile launcher in Halo, just a straight up yeah. uh, homing missile well, that you can control well, that was, yourself. That was, a, that was a rocket. Wait, that missile launcher in Halo? Yeah. Are you thinking Unreal? Unreal had a redeemer that you could control. No, it, I think it was Halo. Which Halo was it? But there was one that you could... You could shoot it, but you could also like jump into its view and control it and sort of move it. I don't recall that. It reminds me of the Unreal Redeemer. Anyway, moving on. Sorry. Um, (laughs) No, you're good. You're good. You're good. And and then we meet Vila Al-Ra, delegate for the Moon Lord Sovereign Romulus Al-Ra, which we mentioned earlier. She's also the sister and does not speak for her brother, as she says, inviting Darrow and Mustang and not Sefi or Severo, because they're Explicitly both savage. Explicitly not them. <laughs> yeah, they're both savage idiots just sitting there <laughs> being assholes or being really quiet, really quiet looking cannibal for some reason. In She's Sefi's not case. a cannibal. No, no, but she kind of looks like one based on Vila's reaction. Space racist. Kinda, well, she's kind of afraid. I guess cannibal might be a bit of an overstatement. Uh, but they're they're invited oh, out to his private estate to I see you. discuss matters. Leave me alone. <laughs> so, I, I mean, obviously, we know that they get there and that it's safe, right? But there's definitely some questions about the at first that kind of arise when you're thinking about it. You're like, is this a good idea? Why are you guys doing this? But we quickly quickly learn that it's okay. 
Severo wraps up the chapter with a wonderful fucking line. Uh, happy diplomacy, kids. You too, horsey. We're in this together, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Calling Mustang horsey kills me every I, time. Yeah, it's so it's good. Like, fuck. It's so good. So, so good. So, chapter 41, The Moon Lord. And, man, does this have a shockingly different feel to it. This entire chapter and the next chapter feel different in a way where Darrow is acting mature in a diplomatic relationship with other people as opposed to trying to outmaneuver them. Mm-hmm. You know, like there, there's a different level of stakes here that's new and invigorating. Right. So one of the things that I find very interesting is after walking into the private abode, I've heard the rim is different. They do not kill children here, but everyone likes to pretend that they don't kill children. I think that this is really interesting because the board of quality control really doesn't have the same impact out on the rim. They still have their institutes. They still send their children off, but they don't intentionally prevent their children. They don't, they don't do their younger. They don't put their younger children through survival of the fittest right. in the same sort of way that the core does. Right. Which it's curious. As to why. What do they actually believe? Do they believe survival of the fittest is the best way to produce um, leaders? And if so, does that mean they're intentionally not doing what is best for the leadership of the rim in their eyes as a means of subjugating them? Hmm. Or do they fear retribution for cruelty done by the the leaders of the rim? Like, there, There's a lot of different ways that could be interpreted. Like if if they're truly buying into the idea of survival of the fittest and the institute as Darrow knows it, then denying the rim of that sort of situation would ensure hypothetically that they don't get the same level of leadership and therefore can't mount a, a ineffective attack against them. Yeah, hmm. it's or it's separate people making separate decisions one of the one of those several things that i mentioned <laughs> yeah man i i think it really like as as you mentioned they don't necessarily have a what feels like a solid ideology and so i feel like that's part of the reason that they're rallying under romulus right is that he feels solid i do also think that lorne to some degree embodied in ideals of the rim golds despite being from mars you know he he kind of had similar mentalities and they they kind of have this sort of feeling like if the entire culture here at large and sort of the society worships greek and roman mythology then the rim feels like a group of stoics and the core feels like the consistently fighting Greeks and other philosophers who are arguing with each other constantly. Okay. Wherein the Stoics are very much like, yeah, reality is reality and we deal with it as it comes. And this is sort of the way that we shake out. We try to sort of pride out of things. We aren't perfect, but we try. And we try to instill these beliefs by doing these things, even though we aren't perfect. So blah. Fair uh, enough. That's, that's the read that I get. On sort of the general moral philosophy, but I don't think that. But who said who sets up the institutes? Yeah, that's that's what I was that's what I was trying to get to, right? So I think that the institutes are still like the proctors are obviously appointed by the governors. So man, that's it's tough. I think that that might still be their own boards of quality control, but maybe there are divisions. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe it's maybe it's a little bit different. And I and in all seriousness, I think that there would be space for 
a novella that could take place inside of an institute out here, or like a nice short story or a comic book, even they're, they're nice. That's what I like so much about this universe. I feel like is that there are things that I don't need answers to, but are interesting corners to mentally explore. And I feel like he's created such a, such a nice space for an actual system of worlds to exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So, they're obviously different. We we're introduced to Seraphine Ra, the daughter of Romulus, and she's a really interesting gold. She's the first child that we've met. Darrow admits that basically on the page, saying Pierce has been hiding kids from you intentionally, <laughs> um, and the golds in general hide their kids intentionally because they don't want them to be assassinated or killed because they've already been through hell in order to survive. But she is interesting. She she basically states servants, but I I even earn servants. And I think that's another great example of the texture difference out here in the rim versus the spoiled children we've come to know in the core. And we don't really know them, but we know what they grow into, right? Mm-hmm. Exposed to pixies and everything else, and uh, or exposed like pixies to everything else. So, right, yeah, she's just different. Seraphine is just a bit different. Yeah, I'm. They they were they alluded to it a couple times of whether or not it was planned or set up or whatever and they never answered it and i'm i'm curious to see if that interaction with seraphina was intentionally like planned and choreographed or if it it was just happenstance they also yeah they do lean into that isn't that kind of funny i i also like that it's kind of they lean into it in cheek multiple times and never give her any sort of response right right he's like well would you believe me even if i told you the truth and darrow's like no so it's like well okay then it it kind of equivocates itself and makes us kind of question it but i i have a tough time believing that seraphina was faking it now whether or not no. she was extracting some kind of information from darrow or completely different. i'm not even necessarily thinking that but just the presence of seraphina being cord- coordinated by romulus oh yeah yeah so, so I, I would naturally produce that conversation not that not that the conversation itself was being um curated in any sort of way but just the meat cute of seraphina and <laughs> and darrow being where did the where the fuck did that term come from I have no it's emerged idea. in like the last year and i hate it oh no i've what like that term's existed for forever Oh man, I I've never heard it, and I've like existed in screenwriting circles for a long time, and like, it's it's definitely shared in screenwriting circles. That's where I'm seeing it. I want to say like there's it. some zombie TV show that uh, all right that surrounds like one of the main locations is a butcher shop called the Meat Cute. Mm. Is that iZombie? I think it might be iZombie. Maybe I, I feel that like sounds right. Reason. That sounds right. Anyway. I totally agree with you that Serafina does kind of have this weird, like, meet cute moment. <laughs> it it does feel like yeah, not in a I romantic way, obviously, but right, right, of course not. I in the sort of coincidence way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting, and I think that that's why I also like the follow up where Darren Romulus kind of discussed it out loud. He's like, "Did you plan that?" And he's like, "I don't know. Do you think I planned it?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's. That's that's kind of a great character moment for Romulus too. I don't, I don't know. I really I really enjoy it. Yeah, I think that the Raws are a very interesting family. Speaking of the term Romulus, though, mm-hmm. fucking wolves, fucking Romulus and Remus versus founded Rome. Like I think this is destiny. You think that Darren and Romulus are destiny? Well, Romulus 
following Darrow hmm. is going to happen because of words. The historical connection. I think this is Pierce Brown dropping hints on us. <laughs> dropping super <laughs> hint bombs. Like, hey, in case you didn't get like the literal megaton nuclear references in the last chapter, here is <laughs> the a literal bomb. First name of the character that we're interacting with. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's that's that's a good point. And it's um it's definitely interesting. It does have a kind of metaphorical or allegorical connotation to it on the back end. So Yeah. I was trying yeah. to do that internally without breaking out of the actual text of the book, but my point is I think I think Pierce Brown chose the name Romulus on purpose for this character. Mm-hmm. Could not could not uh, could not confirm nor deny. <laughs> Uh, I was definitely going to say something different and I almost slipped up and then I said it three times before my brain was like, yep, we're not going to say that. Fair enough. So uh, what do you make of the conversation with Romulus and the rules that he has for his family and kind of the way that gold in gold's in the rim operate? He's very honest about it. And he's like, you know, my kids don't have their iPads until they're 12. Um, (laughs) I mean, to to a certain extent, it reminded me of Lorne, but in a more modern way, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Like if it's fair, Lorne has like an archaic attitude. Yeah. And that's totally fine. But this is this is more of the modern and realistic application of somebody following Lorne's ideals to the best of their abilities while also trying to raise a family and be the Lord of a moon. Like there, there, there's a lot of distractions there and you probably can't follow Lauren's um, advice to the T, but using it as a guide and being, being as true to it as you, as you reasonably can, like, like you and Pierce Brown reading meditations all the time. Mm-hmm. Like you're not anywhere close to Marcus Aurelius. I can tell you that right now, oh, yeah. but actually. I can see, I can see the influences that it has on your life and your decision-making and your choices and everything. So I get that sort of vibe off of Romulus. I think, man, this is so, so interesting. I have deep adoration for the moon Lords, as far as they go as characters and the rim Lords variously as they're referred to. I, I think that they compose a very interesting sect of society because they don't they still believe in the pyramid of society, but they kind of they they understand what they're doing to the people within the pyramid. They're they acknowledge is that actively, worse? I don't know. But That's at the very one. least they're honest about it. You know, I, I think that man, the ability to be honest about something horrible that you're doing, I think, is a quality that isn't respected enough when people can admit that they're doing something wrong. In the path of redemption, more often than not, is the only way that I think it's acceptable. As Um, opposed to justifying their actions? Correct. I don't think that they're trying to strictly justify it here. I think they understand the place, but I do find the Moon Lords very interesting within the society. I I think that they are... A very small grade better than the core's golds. Yeah, as far as it goes in terms of the... Oh, certainly. I think... Moral I think reasons. Leaps and bounds better. But they're still part of the same yeah. society. So we, we obviously get this crazy intense conversation about the various things that are going on with the Moon Lords. We get a lot of background picture that we hadn't really gotten before. We're near the, rim, the 
you know, the shipyards of Ganymede and other things like that. And then we find out that Romulus isn't here necessarily just to talk to Darrow, but he's here to also talk with an agent of the Sovereign. And we find out who the Sovereign sent to negotiate. And that leads us into the final chapter of this week, which is fucking a third of the read, practically. Chapter 42, The Poet. I seriously think that this might be the longest chapter. So I, I, I love kind of the analysis of Darrow again seeing Roke and reacting to Roke very differently, like we mentioned earlier between he and Cassius. He looks at him and he, he says, he is a soldier of his people. I'm a soldier of mine. He is not the evil of his story. He's the hero who unmasked the Reaper, unmasked the Reaper. And fuck, man, that's a fair point. But Roke is a real asshole here. I think Pierce Brown did a magnificent job of doing the whole we're always the hero of our own story thing here. I mean, this is the the emperor. The empire did nothing wrong kind of sentiment. Right, right. Exactly. And he he does a great job of portraying why they line up and think about things that way, or why Roke lines up and thinks about things that way. And I just I, I so angry that this is the trajectory of Roke. <laughs> I just didn't believe it. I just don't want to believe it. But here we are. I we're mean, here. we're here. We're here. Yeah. So <clears throat> he Roke addresses Mustang, and. She replies, don't talk down to me, poet. You're the weeping sword here, not me. This is about this isn't about love. This is about what is right. This is nothing to do with emotion. It has to do with justice, which rests upon the facts. And Mustang is just like smacking him with the truth, which is yeah. wonderful here. Do you think do you believe her? Do I believe Mustang that it's about in, truths in and this, facts? In, in that this sort of decision making process in, is entirely apathetic well not entirely because ultimately she's they're withholding information right so ultimately they're lying okay okay you know like ultimately darrow and mustang are lying because they know that the jackal has the bombs they're withholding information at the very least i i I meant back up a little bit look at it from a from a larger scale um the this isn't about love this is about doing what's right that's that's more what I'm talking. Oh yeah, about. Like, yeah. I, do you I think, think Mustang she? Believes. Do you think she's acting? And I, I I know the term apathetic is a little bit strong for that, but I can't think of a a weaker form of apathy, acting without being clouded by emotion. Yeah, I think that she is just able to dial into the reality of what needs to be done here, and that's what she is putting into this negotiation is it's not about emotion and this negotiation is not going to be about emotion this negotiation is going to be about fact and that's what kind of pierce brown is also laying the ground for here so that we set it up so that we can see Mm -hmm. that also the rimgolds respond for the most part better to fact than emotion however they do also respond well when their horns get tooted as far as society goes because they almost sway all the way back to roke at one point in this chapter. Right. That's true. There's so some fucking I mean, ego there. The, definitely. Definitely a play. And he knows how to manipulate it. But that was an emotional play. It wasn't a factual one, which is ultimately, I think, why they win. It's it's a seed that's planted here that pays off within the same chapter. But it, it's I think it's a good one. Yeah, I agree. 
So the the loan question that we have to answer between the two groups here is who can give more in return? And then the pair of men and Mustang begin to argue their points for their sides. It seemed so, odd. Yeah? This whole thing so. seemed real odd to me. What about it? It was essentially an, an auction. It was an auction for alliances. And I, I don't think that's a reliable basis for an alliance. I think that that's an alliance that you're you're just waiting to be broken. I think both alliances have this tinge of temporary to them. What do you mean right? both? I think that oh, they're both, both choosing the both. Yeah, both yeah, both choosing to side with the sovereign has the temporary benefit and has a temporary nature to it, and choosing to side with Darrow has a temporary nature to it. There, there isn't a permanent decision that's necessarily being made here because as mustang mentions anything that the sovereign promises can likely be reneged at a moment's notice and darrow has to actually win the war that he's claiming to win in order for anything to be possible so really it's the rim lords that are in the tight spot and they have to make a decision so they're basically listening to competitors debate around the premise of their ideas and you know what i work in fucking sales in enterprise and This is what we call an RFP, which is to say basically an acquisition process in which you run through all of the different dialogues, even if they're close or similar, to make sure which most closely aligns with you. So Mm. it it feels real, but I do understand where you're coming from, where it's there's this element of, well, obviously, dudes like, yeah, Hmm. I don't know where, where to go from there. I don't think I really have anything else to say about that. I mean, fair. So Roke is the mouthpiece of the Sovereign, offers the Rimloads, Rimloads, Jesus Christ, Rimlords. You are making my job so much easier here. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Offers the Rimlords some freedom, (laughs) reduced taxes, increased representation, mining contracts, permits, being allowed to select the Olympian Knights as opposed to having the Sovereign just choose them. Basically a bunch of governmental freedoms and trade for their support against the Red Menace, in quotes. All right, so uh, we've got the term mouth. We got rim. We got loads. I'm going to let you fill in the blank with whatever rim job joke you want, and uh, let's continue from there. Yeah, I'm leaving. So <laughs> Darrow counters with a strong left hook. It's it's complete autonomy for the rim, provided that table Darrow table Darrow is able <laughs> table. <laughs> Jesus Christ, we're dissolving here at the end. Darrow is able to win the war. I can see right? you like racing against your own sobriety. <laughs> Ra- racing of- against what? Your own sobriety. Oh no, I'm I'm fine. I'm more concerned about you. Our just time. said Dable, Dable. Correct. It's it's not sobriety. It's against the clock. Well, it is late. Yeah, that's true. Nightmare fuel. Okay, so. I Darrow countering with this feels very weak and flimsy, right? Like, yes, sure, you're offering total autonomy to the rim, but that means that you have to win, and there's no guarantee that you're going to win. You know, Mustang shuts down what Roke's saying, Roke shuts down what Darrow's saying, Darrow's ultimately left without a good place to go from, except for his kind of last resort to some degree. Mm-hmm. We found out that he's already planned this in advance. There were also references in the previous chapter where Darrow was like, I wonder if I'm laying the ground for betrayal with Dancer. And he recants, I have no interest in the rim. This is not my home. 
We are not enemies. My war is not against your race, but against the rulers of my home. What do you think of the the whole? Um, I don't know the dialogue here. Just because of the way that you posited that and uh, sort of placed those two converse- two points together, is is Dancer from the Rim? No, Dancer is from Mars. He is from Mars. Okay, I was I like there was there was something there which if. If Dancer had been from the rim, that would have made a ton of sense, but I think I just was reading into that too much. That's cold, but it makes sense. At the same time, aren't they evacuating that moon? They are... Doesn't it say that, like, right, yes. right around so, there, that, so, like, all the reds are being correct. moved off the Darrow moon had anyway? issued Darrow had issued warnings for evacuation, but there were likely still thousands of people that weren't going to be able to evacuate. Well, Hundreds I mean, that's thousands. their fault. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> They weren't expecting to be sold out. I mean, sold out or all he's saying is he's not going to recruit them. It's not. No, not being sold out. No, these are active. Oh, I'm I'm thinking a little bit ahead. Yes, correct. Correct. You're right. You're right. I'm thinking about when he actually sells out the Sons of Ares cells. Yeah, that's a little little bit later. No, that's a little bit later. I think that's where the evacuation is. Correct. Listed. Correct. That's where that's where the evacuation is listed. Like, He's saying continue continue your oppression of colors within the society. That's okay. This is my home. He's accepting those things. Sorry, I jumped. I jumped ahead yeah, a little bit. No, he's willing to accept that. It's two two very similar things. Yeah. Um, but he's already evacuating all of the Sons of Ares locations. So is he essentially at that point? He is essentially bartering for safety from the Sons of Ares. Like, here are all of the locations of the Sons of Ares bases. They're empty now because we've evacuated, but we're not coming back to this moon. Is that essentially what he's saying? So, like, not not that he's saying that out loud, but that's kind of what he's actually offering. So there, there are two different offers here, right? There's the first offer, which says, my concern is not with the rim. And I don't care about the lower colors in the rim. Of course, I do care about the lower colors in the rim. But I understand that in order for this partnership to work, I need to accept that I cannot save everyone. And that's kind of where he leans into the moral side of the Moon Lords, right? So he kind of nudges them that way. Roke then comes back with, I know this man better than any of you. And I know him like a brother. And he is a liar. He would say whatever it took to break the bonds that bind us together. And Roke is right. He's a liar. And I, I want to. I, I don't just, know if I agree with it. Darrow is a prolific liar. I think he's a prolific. Li- okay. I don't. I don't believe that lying by, by omission is lying. And he's very, very prolific at that. But I, he's not super like he doesn't have a crazy long track record of actually outright lying to people because in in text narrated every time. Every time he says something that is a lie, he says immediately afterwards to himself that he's lying. And it's not that often. It's just a lot of lying by omission, which I don't see as actually lying. I guess lying by omission is fine until it's found out. But I also don't fully agree with that. So just just to kind of back up, I I think Roke's point is to say that he knows him like a brother. He does. He yeah. went through the Institute with him. He knows him throughout the entirety of Golden Sun. He understands, obviously, that he's a liar because he was a part of the the group that dismantled the lie. And the lie was that 
Darrow was a gold, right? Which is not yeah. lying by omission. He was consistently lying that he was a gold. Right. That's true. So I don't know. There there are other components of that that are there. But for for me, it's not so much about this this in particular lie. I just wanted to state but that. But he was never it asked is, if he was a red and said, no, I'm a gold. I like, mean, he, there was kind of a nudge nudge with Severo at the end of Red Rising. But yeah, 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 a little fine. bit. But but I, I feel like that doesn't come up. That doesn't that doesn't count as explicitly lying. But it's lying about your origins, right? It, okay, it definitely still is that. lying. There's that. There's lying about yeah. your origins. But also, anytime he talks about his fake family, all of it is rooted in the memories of his father. Yeah. Like, so the, the only PJ, thing with... That, yeah, you're right. You're right. No, with, with what you're saying, PJ, this is actually how I defend Roke's take generally, is that I think that in a reality in which Dara wasn't lying, all of these various components that you're citing that he's being truthful about but not telling the full truth would be enough to sway broke for the most part. Yeah. So that's where like my my brain goes on the on the tangent, but I do I do agree with you and understand. I just wanted to segue between that and the decision that Darrow makes with giving up the sons the cells of the sons of Ares. Yes, he issued an evacuation that is going to save some lives, but it's not going to save all of the lives. It's not going to save anywhere near all of the lives of the 350 cells. Depending on how long it takes. Right. Right. You know, like how long does it take to to make that agreement solid? Almost but, immediately. They're they're rallying their fleets right after this in, in this moment. Right. Right. But how? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. You're right. It's they're like within 20 minutes, we need to do this. And he unblocks a signal and lets him go through. That's when Darrow leaves and he decides to go confront Roke and talk with him. And we get kind of the last part of the chapter. The one thing I want to mention before you move to that component of the chapter is the brief mention here. Do not let Darrow manipulate you into bringing back the dark age that came before. Hmm. Uh Uh (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. 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 Oh, no. What are we going to do about the Dark Age? Um, so it is capitalized, but I think that's the the way I read that is that it's capitalized in in the way that the Renaissance is capitalized. Um, in that it it is the title of a period of time in their history. Mm-hmm. But it, it it is fucking ominous. But maybe we'll find out that in the Dark Age, the Reds were living freely and uh, eating bonbons every day, which that sounds pretty fucking good. I think I'm going to agree that that's what it is. I definitely agree. Perfect. Glad we're in agreement. Bonbons forever. <laughs> uh, so Darrow then shortly thereafter, as we'd mentioned, gives up all of the sons of the cells of the sons of Ares within the rim for Romulus's support. And Mustang really does the coup de gras, revealing the location of the cache of weapons on asteroid S-1988, which really pretty much does it for Romulus and sends him off into a, a tirade and most of the other Moon Lords agreeing with him. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's something. Rogue completely crumbles under the discussion of the Depot. And, and, and gives away the fact grovels. that the, the Depot exists, which I yeah. think is the biggest issue. A giant, a massive misstep on his part. Yeah. At that moment, he lost all control of the room. I'm guessing he wasn't that well versed in how to deal with discussions on the Depot. It, totally true uh, for, for a couple of different textual reasons, right? So 
Octavia is specifically mentioned saying that she didn't give him any kind of information about the jackal and the rim clearly because otherwise he would have mentioned it like it clearly would have been something and she if she would have let him inside of that circle that means that he would have been important enough to know and that trust would have made a big difference right even octavia doesn't trust roke with information which doesn't so she much doesn't speak seem to, to roke. be one to trust anyone with information though correct all that i'm ultimately saying is there's some irony between octavia not trusting <laughs> roke and darrow not well darrow not trusting for a very different reason, but there is an irony for him being caught in the middle here and uh, right. choosing the wrong side. <laughs> so the that is given up. He goes into an absolute rant, chooses to side with the Sons of Ares to expunge the Sword Armada, and Mustang rallies the forces while Darrow follows after Roke. Darrow runs after him and says, Roke, when did I lose you? And he replies, when Quinn died, gold, red, it doesn't matter. Your spirit is black. Quinn was good. Leah was good. And you use them. You are ruined, Darrow. You drain your friends of life and leave them spent and wasted in your wake, convincing yourself each death is worth it. And holy fuck, is that good? It's it's just a wonderful send off to this very long chapter uh the other part of this chapter that i really appreciate that we didn't really touch on is the poem that he reads it's an original poem that pierce wrote i think it does a fantastic job of painting kind of roke as this warrior poet and it feels very referential to a lot of the other poetry that pierce has either referenced or talked about like it's it's a great poem so we end the week with roke being in a terrible position Darrow and Mustang having one over an ally. They're on a three-win streak, technically speaking, if you skip over the loss of Ragnar. I don't think you um, get to skip over that. Fuck. Okay, so they lost Ragnar, but are on a win streak now-ish, too. Um, with that, we move into your predictions, so PJ's predictions. So, first question for you. Well, let's back up. Do you have anything else on Chapter 42? <sighs> I don't think so. I'm excited to see what the daughter brings to the table going forward. Serafina? Yeah. Interesting. Does she get fed jelly beans? You're fired. So, PJ's predictions. That's that's not it. Severo starts with an S. He should eat jelly beans, too. He probably likes jelly beans. As everyone does. What's your point? Jelly beans are awesome. <laughs> jelly beans. So, next week... <laughs> Big war, probably? Uh, yes. Big war. Many pew, pew, pew. <laughs> it, uh, it feels like it's building up to that. I'm glad that you're acknowledging that that feels likely. And I'm just going to accept the fact that I wrote a question. That, that was know. a pretty dumb question. It, it was a dumb question. What, what other question do you ask about next week? I don't know. This is good your question. Job. I have three more. I have to so, answer the questions that you write. This is your job. I'm not answering my own questions. So what's going on with the whole Mustang, Cavax, Daxo, Deanna thing? What's going on with all those interactions? Um, I think I mentioned it before, but I think it's an, the, the, the starting and the workings of an, an arranged marriage. So Mustang obviously is fatherless and motherless, but she was raised pretty heavily by Cavax, so he is kind of the de facto father. And I think 
Deanna is the she's clearly the matron of her family and respected by everybody. So I think they're planning on getting at least getting permission to join their families together. But also, I think Deanna is a little bit too smart for that. And I think uh, I think she's going to be the one to usurp the power from everyone else. And, uh, I don't know, rule. Interesting. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that. It's a lot of predictions I in one question, but... Guess? If any yeah. of them come, come true, then you have to drink. Just once. You, you made like a layered prediction that you're definitely getting wrong. Okay. Uh, what's the like jackal? You're gonna fuck me over with that one, and every micro guess that doesn't come true is going. To you be know, for me. I think I think that I've been really fair in the fact where if I'm like this is a bullshit question that you provided a moderately accurate answer on, I take a drink too. Yeah, so that's true. <clears throat> what's the jackal most likely to do with the big boom buzz? The big boom buzz. <laughs> uh i think i mentioned before i think he's gonna seed some uh some firepower into the red legion in order to sow some fear within the society as a whole and peg it on the sons of Ares, even though it was technically a separate entity and then as soon as he stockpiles enough of the helium three to essentially control the market I think he'll be in a position to make whatever demand he wants and uh, essentially not have to worry about repercussions. He can okay. literally usurp power, usurp the the sovereign title from Octavia without actually blowing anyone up. Okay, cool. How are Roke and Antonia doing after next week? Hmm... I think that is Antonia, not not Victra, correct? Correct, Antonia. The the side of the sovereign's fleet out here in the room. I think there'll be some pot shots taken towards Darrow and his fleet. Otherwise it's just gonna be kind of looming menacingly towards uh I don't know. I don't know. So Roke lives next week? He lives next week, yes. Okay. Antonio and, lives too. I think okay. I think they just um cause problems. Sure. Sure. Even if they're not present, I think they cause problems. Fair enough. All right. Anything else? No. No, I don't think so. Okay. Sounds good. So Going into next week, next week we will be reading chapters 43 through 49, the second chunk of part three, Glory. Um, is that the end of part three? Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. the second chunk slash the end of part three. So we're going to be reading through part three up until part four stars. So. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Continue to refer us to your friends. Anything that you can do to help us grow, leave us a review, recommend us on Spotify, follow along and subscribe on your preferred platform. All of that we really appreciate. Interact with us on any social media sites, uh, Twitter and Instagram. We are at Words Whiskey Pod on both of those. Feel free to give us a follow. We post interesting content related to our drinks of the week as well as the show card for each week, which we like to tune up with a little bit of the humor, precluding the next show. 
And we interact with people all the time on both Twitter and Instagram. So send us stuff. We we love to we love to see it. As mentioned, a couple of different times in this episode. Beyond that, check out our website for all of our different cocktail recipes, as well as other components. We will very, very soon have our calendar up for most of the rest of the year, at the very least through Dark Age and the Sons of Aries comics. I've got all that mapped out, so that'll be coming out very, very soon. And yeah, beyond that, have a great week. Thanks. Bye.